you take your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 13. In all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, the formula works something like this. Paul describes the grace of God and how it applies to the lives of those to whom he's speaking. And then he calls on them to respond with action. In Romans, the first 11 chapters are a description of the grace of God and particularly our need. He says that we were sinners condemned and guilty before God, that we were shamed by our sin and outcast. We were enslaved by sin and so we were helpless. And yet the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ came to answer everything. By Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we are justified before God forgiven of our sins and declared righteous in His sight. Because Jesus sent His Spirit to us, we have literally power from heaven that enables us to overcome sin and put it to death. We're not helpless. We're not slaves anymore. And because God has, by His Son and Spirit, adopted us as His own children, we're not shamed and outcast, but we're welcomed and even partakers in some way with the glory of God. Those are the, the actions of God that bring grace to you and answer every need you have in sin. And then after chapter 11 where he's described the grace of God from 12 to the end, he's going to say this is how you're to respond. He starts by saying, in view of those mercies, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, this is the sensible response to those mercies. It's the most logical thing to do. But what does it look like to live as sacrifices? It looks like living for one another in the church using your gifts. It looks like loving without hypocrisy and overcoming evil with good, as he says in chapter 12. It looks like submitting to the authorities that are over you, whether they're governors or you know, school boards, whatever those authorities are. We submit to them because those are God-ordained authorities and it's an act of trusting God to submit to them. Today we want to look at what it means to live with all the blessings of God, to live into the world anticipating uh, the coming of Christ and uh, the, how quickly our salvation will be upon us. Before we read Romans 13, which we'll start in verse 8 in a moment, let's pray for God to bless the reading and study of His Word to our health and our spiritual nourishment. Father in heaven, we have come to approach your word that you have inspired through the Apostle Paul and preserved for nearly 2,000 years that we might read your word. And what we're about to read is as if you were speaking from the clouds itself. It is truly your word as if it were your own voice. It is trustworthy and sure and it leads us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. It leads us to life and to godliness. And it leads us to Christ Jesus, whom we want to know. So we pray, would you make evident your word? Would you help us understand it and apply it? Would you send your spirit to govern all that we do and cause eternal changes in us for Christ's honor and glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans 13, verse 8. This is God's Word. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. 
You shall not steal. You shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. This is God's Word. It's completely true and it is utterly trustworthy. A few days ago, I was reading the Dilbert comic strip in the newspaper. And, of course, you know, it's all set in, in a kind of stereotypical office. And this particular episode had Wally. Uh, Wally, if you don't read the comic strip, is the uh, stereotype of the underperforming employee who's looking for a way to avoid work rather than do it. And Wally picks up the phone and calls the pointy-haired boss. The pointy-haired boss is the stereotype of... of uh, incompetent corporate middle management. He calls the pointy-haired boss and says, a little, he tells a fib, he says he's a headhunter, you know, one of those uh, corporate folks who try to poach talent from other companies. He says, I'm a headhunter, and I know a company that wants to hire you for a much higher paying job than you're currently working at. Well, of course, the pointy-haired boss is excited. Wally hangs up the phone and tells the closest coworker, I'd like to soften the crowd a little before I go into my performance review. And he goes in and he confesses to his pointy-haired boss, I haven't accomplished anything this year. The pointy-haired boss, thinking about his future, says, it doesn't matter, you're fine. You see, what happens in this little story is Scott Adams anticipates the way sometimes we think. When I've got this promised land right off in the, in the future, a little bit better coming, it makes me sort of forget about what's going on right now to become apathetic. At least that happens sometimes. The boss it doesn't matter what happens to this company anymore. I'm leaving to someplace better. I see this happen just about every year. Somewhere around spring break, we call it senioritis, when the, the seniors have a hard time staying motivated for the last nine weeks of school when they know the promised land, college, is waiting. The same thing can happen, spiritually speaking. This passage tells us that we're near the end. He says at least twice. Verse 11, Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. He tells these Roman believers, when you first believed, we're closer to salvation now. Now, salvation here, we sometimes use that to mean getting saved. The person who is not believing in Christ, comes to realize their need of a Savior, trust in the Lord Jesus, and they've gotten saved. That's the way we use that language. But salvation in the Bible usually means that whole comprehensive plan of God to not just bring you into forgiveness of sins, but to bring you into a full restoration of your being like Christ, bearing His image, of, of the full glory of God becoming on display in you. That's what salvation means. And He says, we're closer your salvation is closer. And then he says in an image for us to, 
sort of a metaphor to keep in our minds. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. You know that moment right before the sun comes up. That's the image he wants us to think. And we might see all of that and we go, well, I'm so close. If we're really this close to glory, we're really this close to the fulfillment of our salvation, if we're really this close because whether he means life is short and when we die we'll go to be with Christ, or whether he means the coming of Christ is near in a cosmic scale, whatever he means, we're to think short and therefore urgent. There's three reasons, at least three, I think that sometimes we, we lose the urgency and we, we get senioritis. We get the idea that it's short and so I'm, it, it makes me apathetic, spiritually speaking. Here's the first one. The, the first one is this. Uh, I'm pessimistic. I see how the culture is decaying and I see sin in places I didn't used to see it and I see places of power becoming more against the kingdom of God and, and it leads me to a cynicism What's the use? Another one is to think about heaven and say, well, that's where life really is. This place doesn't matter. There's an old idiom uh, about Christians. They're so heavenly minded that they're of no earthly good. I really don't think that uh, saying is true. I think folks who are heavenly minded become very earthly good. It's when we abuse our heavenly mindedness. When we think only of that and only of of this hope of heaven and to think that's when everything happens so that I become lethargic or apathetic here, that it becomes an abuse and we grow apathetic in these last hours. The other uh, way that happens is that we've read about how desperate we are to need the grace of God and how the grace of God answers every need. And then we come to think, well, then that must mean all I need to do is become passive and let God do His thing. But the Christian life isn't passive. That's an abuse of what the grace of God is. In fact, the grace of God says, God is at work in you, so go out and put to death sin with confidence that God's at work in you. Go live faithfully for God because God's at work in you. You have real hope that God is working and changing you. And so we ought to be active, but we become passive. It's an abuse, and we become apathetic in this life. I recently heard a preacher say that, that uh, evangelicals focus so much on the beginning of the gospel and the end of it that we forget the middle. The beginning when we say, I, I need Christ and I, I trust in Him for the first time, making our professions of faith and praying to, to trust in the Lord Jesus for forgiveness of sins. We make a lot of that moment. And then we make a lot of the idea that we're going to be with Jesus one day, but we forget about this big middle in which God is at work in us. And there is a way for us to respond to these last hours, to the shortness of life, to the nearness, at least cosmically speaking, of Christ's return. I want you to look at at just two things this passage tells us. The first one, how do we respond to the nearness of our salvation, to the time being short? We turn from self to love. Look at verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. When we get this opening word, owe no one anything, if you were to look back, that makes sense because he's in the context of what we do owe people. 
We owe our taxes. We owe revenue. We owe honor. We owe respect. Last week we looked at the idea that the Christian sees God as the king over all the the universe, that even the governments of this world, though they certainly seem opposed to God and are in many ways, God rules over them that no authority has become that authority without the institution and sovereign plan of God. And so it's an act of faith and worship for us to submit ourselves to those governing authorities. Now, for a, a brief aside from the passage we're reading, after preaching that passage last week, I got a few questions, and I wanted to just address one of them. And that is, is there ever a time to disobey our authorities? And the answer is yes. When an authority commands you to do what God forbids, you have to recognize that God is the supreme authority, and that's an abuse of this lower authority over you. So when a government, when a ruler, when a parent should command someone to do what God forbids, it is the obligation of the Christian to disobey that authority. When a government or some authority forbids you to do what God commands, you must disobey that authority. Now, I didn't bring that up last week because, just quite frankly, I don't think most of us are dealing with that. We live in a place where it's relatively easy underneath the authorities that we have to be Christian. That may not always be the case. There may come a day when, because of new discrimination laws, that it becomes forbidden by the government to speak against certain sins. And when that happens, or if that happens, then let us side with God's Word and preach the whole counsel of God's Word and take what consequences may come. But right now, here in the Bible Belt, it's still well within almost all of our freedoms to be fully Christian, And so I didn't bring that point up because it doesn't address us, at least not yet. We're still called to give honor to those who are in authority over us, to give respect to them. And should we have to come to the place where we must defy this authority for the sake of conscience and of God, then we must do that by still giving honor and respect. Let us act in defiance with the same respect and honor that is due those who are over us. That's what we owe them. And as Paul thinks about how we're to pay our debts, those can be satisfied. You can give due honor and have completed your responsibility. But he says, I want you to live as though you owe no one anything. Don't have these debts outstanding. Don't have people who are waiting on you to pay them. Don't have... Uh, don't borrow things and not return them. And that brings me to a point of minor confession. If I have a couple of things of yours, I'm really sorry. I was convicted by that this week as I was reading this. But the idea is that we ought to be able to think so much of other people that we don't live off of other people's things and possessions. Here's what I mean by that. You remember a few years ago when the economy took its drastic turn and they located, at least simplistically, the the cause of that in those 
subprime mortgages. Here's how that happened, again, simplistically. There was a, a pretty thriving economy, and this was a good time to help people who were before unable to get into home ownership to begin to get a home, perhaps having to borrow 100% of the money, which is a risk. And so when people would, because the economy is doing well, they could take that risk. But then, as things began to turn and people had gotten into houses they couldn't afford, those mortgages became a burden on the banks. And so they quit loaning money, and the money quit flowing, and all of a sudden you have a drastic change in the economy. It brings a huge problem. Now, that's the simplistic version. I'm no economist. But you see, all of that came back to this idea. Somebody said, I can get a higher lifestyle by borrowing more money than I can afford. And in doing that, I'm not thinking, how can I pay back my debts? I'm thinking, how can I live for myself? In fact, most debts are like that. Where we think, instead of how can I live within my means, I'm thinking, how can I use other people's resources to elevate myself? And when we can't pay our debts, we've, we've demonstrated a, a very selfish lifestyle. That's why Paul says, oh, no one, anything, we're not going to be selfish except to love each other. That's the debt that never can be paid off. Always think, I owe love to the people around me. And love is not selfish, it is self-giving. Love is self-giving. It's where I begin to look, instead of at what I want and need, I look at what other people want and need. And that becomes a shape of my life. To love one another is to consider others at least as much as I do myself. That's what it says in verse... uh, Nine, at the end, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The way you would take care of yourself, would you take care of your neighbor with equal diligence, with equal sacrifice? Think of what you might give up for yourself. Would you give that up for the person who sits next to you? It's a a massive command to consider others as high as your own self. But... Love has parameters. It has definition. It's not this sort of simply good feeling. In fact, many people today would hear you say, commanding love, that doesn't make any sense. Love is spontaneous and you sort of feel it. You fall in love rather than you give it. How can we be commanded to love? Or we think that it's love means this. Just let everybody be what they want to be. Keep your hands off and don't say anything. Just smile. That's what love looks like. This sort of nothingness that says, be whatever you want to be. Rosaria Butterfield, I've mentioned her in a a couple of sermons before. She was an English professor uh, who was very anti-Christian and she was herself a homosexual living and working in Syracuse, New York. She became friends with a local pastor and the church befriended her and she became interested in the claims of Christ and in what the gospel had to say and then she became convinced of it. And she realized it meant she had to change the way she was going to live and so her whole life became marked by this conversion. She's written a book about it, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, talking about how Christ convinced her of His goodness so that she would change. 
Well, she was invited by Reform University Fellowship to come speak at the University of South Florida a couple of weeks ago, and there were huge protests. No one there apparently wanted someone to come and say that homosexuality was a sin. They thought that was wrong to come say that. It would be damaging to their community on the campus that she was going to come bring discriminatory and hate-filled speech, they said. Now, they didn't know Miss Butterfield. She is gracious. And among her first words out were, homosexuality is sin and so is homophobia. And the way Christians have treated homosexuals has been sinful too. She was very gracious and very thoughtful. But as they introduced her and she stood up to speak, the entire front row of the audience stood up and turned around to face the audience and written on their t-shirts were messages like, USF is for love. USF, University of South Florida, is for tolerance. We don't believe in this discriminatory, hate-filled speech. We believe in love. And love was clearly meaning, don't say anything about my life. But look what Paul says when he says, you're to love. He says this, the commandments. You shall not commit adultery was his first one. That the sexual relationship is between one man and one woman in the context of a marriage. That's loving. And anything outside it is not. Anything outside of that context is using another person. Not loving them. You shall not murder. Love has definition. It says, I care about your life and I care what you do with your life because your life is precious and valuable. You shall not steal. I care about your possessions. You shall not covet. Now, how does coveting in any way loving your neighbor? I mean, after all, coveting happens inside the heart. I could covet and you might not even know. But coveting is where I look at your life and say, you don't deserve that, I deserve that. And you see, what I've done in that thought is I have lowered you and raised me and I've put myself above you. I've created envy and jealousy, the very thing he says to avoid in verse 13. And what I've done is created a barrier between our relationship. My coveting actually hurts you. And so love is the opposite of that. Here's the problem. We're all adulterers because we all have that sinful desire in us. We're all guilty of coveting. We're all guilty of murder because Jesus defined murder as even being angry in your heart with your brother And which of us has never been angry? And so even as we read these commands and we see what God calls us to, this love is far from us. And so it drives us back, those first 11 chapters, it drives us back to looking upon the mercies of God and saying, in view of your mercies, can you help me love my neighbor? You see, I'm not convinced that if I love you, instead of caring about myself, someone's going to care about me until I have the mercies of God. And God says, well, I'll take care of you. I will love you enough that if no one else does, you'll still be okay. My mercy is so great that if you have no love from the people around you, you can still love them. And I want you to remember Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when He said to His best friends, could you pray with me? I am despairing. And they went to sleep. And He felt utterly alone, like no one loved Him, And yet he knew his father did. 
in view of God's mercies, will you take a moment to say, all right, I'm not going to care about myself today. I'm going to turn from self and love. Because I know the mercies of God. Now much more quickly, the second thing. In verse 13, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Here he says, you've turned from self to love. I want you to turn from natural appetites to spiritual ones. The things that he describes are those things which people might call the pleasures. The reason someone gets drunk is because it has this sort of temporary good feeling. And it helps me forget other things that I don't like. And so the way someone who's given to drunkenness might use drunkenness to, to feel good at least for a moment. The way someone might seek out their own pleasures. Those, that's the list. And the reason I get involved in quarreling and jealousy is because you become a threat to what makes me feel good. And he says, I want you to stop worrying about that question. What makes you feel good? Rather, I want you to think about what leads you to Jesus. Instead of thinking about what does my stomach want, think what does my soul need? Put on the Lord Jesus. And then he's so bold to say, make no provision for the flesh, to gratify its desires. Don't worry about what you'll eat. Don't worry about how you will feel. Your concern is that you get to know the Lord Jesus and it will make it worth it. And, and Jesus taught this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said this, and this may come across to at least some of us as uh, a little um, fascinating. Jesus says, when you fast, and at that point I go, he's not talking to me. When you fast, He expected us to fast. What does fasting do? It makes me grumpy, is what it does. When I say, okay, I'm going to fast for a day, some, I might skip breakfast on normal days, so that doesn't count. It's usually late morning when if you're fasting and you're like me, you say, oh, I'm really hungry. And that stomach pain is meant to, to jar you, say, this physical appetite is the small thing, and it's reminding me of the bigger thing, and so you pray. And every time your stomach says, you're hungry, you say, I'm hungry for Jesus. And so I'm going to pray and seek Him. And then, it, like I said, it makes me grumpy and it helps me go, okay, that means this thing that I can consider my nice, even-keeled, sort of kind demeanor that I like to think of myself as a spiritual you know, maturity is really just I've had a good meal. And I've depended more on you know, the ham sandwich that I've depended on Jesus. It helps me expose where the condition of my soul really is. And, and here's what Paul's saying in this passage. Take that natural appetite that says, I want to feel good, and harness it. Harness it so that you can use it to say, I want to know Jesus. So that every time your body says to you, I want to feel good, you say, but I want to know Jesus more. You see, in view of God's mercies, the most sensible thing in the world is to say these physical appetites aren't what I need most. 
And it trains us to think of what my spiritual appetite, that I don't even know what it feels like because I'm so hard to it and so insensitive to it. I don't realize how much I need something spiritually. That appetite is there. And so Paul's saying, think about it, consider it. You use the time now to get to know Jesus and you won't be disappointed. This is an interesting passage. The great St. Augustine, who's influenced Christian theology as, perhaps as much as any man since the apostle, uh, apostles, read this passage. When he read, make no provision for the flesh, he goes, that's all I've been doing. And it made him read the rest of the Gospels. This was what converted Augustine to Christianity. The, um, the, the other day I was at Walmart and the uh, cashier was uh, telling me how terrible of a day it had been and how her one saving hope was that there's just 30 minutes until I get off. And I noticed that she wasn't moving as fast as some of the other times I'd been through the line and I noticed that she wasn't all that concerned with how long the line was getting and, and what was going on. And, and I, I noticed... That job performance, just dipping a little, but I was about to get out, so it didn't matter to me. But it was that 30 minutes until I can go do something else. The same thought comes to us spiritually. If it's really close, why do I need to work so hard? Because learning to love your neighbor is to taste heaven. And and, and making no provision for the flesh, but learning to, to know Christ, to put Him on, to live in Him, That's heaven. That's what heaven will really be, loving your neighbor and enjoying Jesus more than anything else. And Christ is saying, you can taste it now and enjoy it now. And by learning to enjoy it here, you'll enjoy it more there. When I was in college, I was forced to take music appreciation. It was part of the uh, few electives that I, I could take to fulfill all the requirements and it was the least objectionable one, uh, given that I thought I had all the culture I needed with rap music. It was true. And so I, I sat in there, and the, the teacher wasn't really, to be honest, that very good. I didn't learn much about music appreciation until the teacher had to be gone for a week. And it was the week right before the university symphony orchestra was going to play and so he got the conductor of the symphony orchestra to come be a substitute teacher for three days i learned more about music in three days than in the rest of my life combined and he taught us about how to recognize theme and variation and how to see the music developing and to see the different movements of the orchestral music and what they mean and how they work and how they put together and make a beautiful arrangement And it was like he was teaching me a foreign language. And so I showed up on the day when that symphony orchestra was going to play. And before, I could enjoy ten minutes of orchestra music before I started to get drowsy. I'm just confessing that. It's not my strength. But that day, I understood the words of the music. There was no singing. But I understood what it was saying. I heard the artistry. And I began to appreciate the music for a little bit of work than early. Here's what Paul's saying. You can learn to appreciate heaven today. 
Learn to love your neighbor and not think selfishly because that's the way of heaven. Learn to not make any provision for the flesh but to put on Christ and enjoy Him because that's the way of heaven. And in that little bit of appreciation here, one day you'll stand in front of the whole symphony orchestra of the angels singing music to God and you'll say, this is where I belong. This is the music I've been waiting for and I get it. I've been preparing for this all my life. And you will not be disappointed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, would you help us take hold of heaven now to live like heaven is real, to know that it's close, but the urgency to prepare ourselves for that day is good and right. And everything we give up to love our neighbor, we won't be disappointed we gave up. And everything we give up, every pleasure we deny ourselves in order to know Christ, we won't be disappointed. So I pray, would you help us love our neighbor and know your son that we might be prepared for heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.